Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in German Studies, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. I'm your host, Leah Greenberg. Today, I'm delighted to be talking with Dora Osborne about her latest book, What Remains, the Post-Holocaust Archive in German Memory Culture, published by Camden House in 2020. Welcome, Dora. Thanks, Leah. Nice to be here. So Dora Osborne is a senior lecturer in German at the University of St. Andrews in the UK. Dr. Osborne did her PhD at the University of Cambridge on W.G. Sebald and Christoph Ransmeier. She then held a postdoctoral scholarship from the Berlin House of Representatives at the Free University of Berlin. She's taught at the universities of Oxford, Nottingham, and Durham. And between 2012 and 2015, Dr. Osborne was a Leverhulme Early Career Fellow at the University of Edinburgh. She recently co-edited the volume Politics and Culture in Germany and Austria Today of the Edinburgh German Yearbook. Dr. Osborne's current research considers how post-human and post-anthropocenic thought finds resonance in contemporary literature and film from Germany and Austria. And uh, I just wanted to take a moment to ask you a bit about um, what brought you into the field of uh, German studies more generally, uh, memory studies uh, in particular, since the book that we're talking about today, uh, What Remains, uh, looks at memory culture in the Berlin Republic in uh, a period in which most of the living witnesses of uh, World War II and National Socialism are no longer with us. And uh, you posit an archival turn. So we'll talk about that a bit more later, but I'd like to hear just about what brought you to this field. Yeah, sure. Um, so I think the, the sort of my interest really grew um, through my encounter with the work of W.G. Zabart, who's an author um, who's found resonance really quite widely, sort of much, much far, further than, than just in, in Germany. Um, and as, as many people know, um, Seibart's work is, is really preoccupied with memory. Um, and that preoccupation is definitely connected to German memory and to the memory of the Holocaust, but also is, is a much kind of um, wider preoccupation than that. So finds these kind of resonances that um, might be described as multidirectional, to, to use um, the, the terminology developed by Michael Rothberg. Um, so that's that's kind of where my interest in the sort of the, the question of memory grew. Um, I think also um, I was very interested in psychoanalysis um, at university, also of the, the, the way um, psychoanalysis has understood memory and trauma. And I think um, 
probably when I was an undergraduate a long time ago, uh, trauma studies was this kind of um, quite a kind of um, uh, strong field um, that that um, had a lot of resonances with with German studies. So I wrote a PhD on on W. G. Seibert and on uh, work by an Austrian author, Christoph Ramsmeier, and that had a lot to do with trauma and, and memory. Um, and one thing that I was struck by um, in Seibert's work in particular was the sort of the question of material memory. So um, the way that Seibert's texts are always sort of interested in on the one hand sort of objects, artifacts, but also on the other sort of um, libraries, museums, archives, um, and how these material remnants are often sort of threatened by um, uh, dispersal or, or by sort of dissolution, and that there was almost a sort of sense in which some of these um, mater uh, memory materials were sort of anti-materials that seemed to be affected by the passage of time by destruction, um, things that are, are, are sort of um, of concern for Zebart. So, um, I think that's where this this current book emerged from was this um, this question of material memory that I found really powerful in Zebart. And so, the book isn't about Zebart explicitly or sort of um, specifically. I sort of mentioned him a few times, um, but it was sort of taking. A kind of um, a preoccupation that that seemed really important for Zebart and sort of trying to see how it came to play out in in um, in other works of literature, but also in films um, and in sort of memorial culture and, and memory culture more more broadly. Um, so yeah, that was that was kind of where the project came from. Okay, so I can definitely see then that how those. Um those different uh, interests during your PhD then, then led to this project. Um, and because it's such a, a, um, a materially centered uh, research project, I was wondering sort of how you then came about to the different um, case studies that you mm -hmm. look at. If you could perhaps give um, a bit of an overview of mm -hmm. sort of your, your thesis about this archival mm -hmm. turn and then the some of the artifacts that you then look at. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, as, as you said, Leah, um, I guess one of the sort of um, one kind of premise for the book is sort of trying to understand what I think is the um, the, the the particular significance of the archive in what's been called the post witness era. Um, so obviously, archival materials, archival documents are always important for understanding the past, but um, at this particular juncture where those with a living memory, with, with lived experience of the Second World War and the Holocaust reach the end of their lives, it seems that the archive is sort of going to have to take a more prominent role in the work of remembering that past and commemorating that past. Um, so that was sort of, that's, that's sort of one of the kind of foundational sort of ideas if you like um and and then sort of seeing how um in different kinds of modes of cultural production so in literature but also visual arts um film memorials memorial projects that the archive seems to take a more prominent role or, or seems to be um 
a kind of um, seems to be of importance for artists, for directors, um, for, for writers, and, and trying to understand what the archive means for these projects. And, and I think importantly, one, one thing that I wasn't trying to do was to use archives as a historical resource. So, so you know, I, I don't go to archives myself. It's not about my own sort of interaction with um, that kind of material memory. It's, it's precisely sort of seeing how um, these artists, directors, writers, work with either archives or the idea of archives in their memory work, in the sort of work that they do to try and remember the past. Um, so the, the book is divided into, um, there's a sort of um, theoretical chapter, but um, then there are three chapters where I look at sort of different examples. And the, the first set of examples are memorial projects. Um, the second set of examples are documentary films and a couple of examples of documentary theatre. And then the, the last chapter is um, different kinds of prose narratives. And, and I just um, sort of in, in all of these examples, I'm sort of struck by how the archive is a sort of um, an important kind of trope in, in the sort of um, the, 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 these different projects in, in the way that they're engaging with memory. So it's that particular relationship between the archive and, and memory that I'm interested in. So, so you make note of the perhaps non-traditional way in which you're approaching archives in this project as mm -hmm. a literary scholar. So mm -hmm. perhaps for the historian who approaches this book, they might be surprised. And, and perhaps for, for a general audience, I thought it would be interesting if you could tell um, potential readers and our listeners about how you define the archive um, and then how the archive uh, is then incorporated into these different um, memorialization, mm -hmm. um, documentary, mm -hmm. theatrical, literary works. Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm sort of taking a very kind of broad definition of the archive, and um, you know that 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 could include official documents and resources housed in. Um, in designated archives with sort of designated people looking after that material, but it could also sort of on the other end of the spectrum refer to um, much more kind of personal artifacts that kind of come to constitute an archive in an unintended way. And the reason I'm sort of working with that broad definition is because I think in um, German memory culture and, and in the sort of discourses that um, have emerged in, in sort of understanding how Germany has has um, worked through its national socialist past and, and um, come to engage with the memory of the Holocaust um, is that th sort of these these very different resources have are, are kind of crucial to that project in, in different ways um, and so um, you know just just at the very basic level of sort of understanding what happened official resources are, are of course in, incredibly important but that's actually um there's been a sort of sense in which perhaps more personal artifacts um almost offer a kind of counter resource so particularly the work of mariana hirsch for example her her idea of post-memory 
Um, she's sort of written about how um, kind of perhaps more personal artefacts, sort of non-official resources, um, have a particularly important role to play in, in sort of um, coming to understand a, a traumatic past. Um, so so it's sort of it was very important for the project to have a sort of broad understanding of, of the archive. And then um, what I'm sort of trying to kind of look at in particular is is what I've called the post-Holocaust archive. So um, a concept of the archive that's that's very um, much responding or, or, or very much um, a sort of legacy of trauma um, where that kind of um, material legacy is, is absolutely marked by the violent history it bears witness to. So in other words, it's, it's incomplete, it's, it's marked by belatedness, um, it's um, marked by sort of gaps and, and lacunae. Um, so the, in, in the context of thinking about um, Germany's violent past, um, it was really important to sort of, um, to, to engage in that first chapter with, with the sort of question of how, um, what remains in this post-witness era is, is a very kind of complicated resource. Um, so on, on the one hand, um, it might be sort of official documents that are sort of precisely the product, products of a bureaucratic regime. And on the other hand, it, it might be um, the sort of the, 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 the material remnants of, of violence um, that are kind of incomplete, that are um, themselves kind of damaged. And that all of these things somehow constitute what remains for the next generation in this po post-witness era. And that sort of understanding the complexity of that legacy is the sort of first step in, in sort of um, in, in continuing the, the work of remembering that past in an era where we're, we're sort of much more dependent on that material legacy. And, and you, you mentioned this, this, um, these sets of archival materials that we mm -hmm. have both mm -hmm. um, from the bureaucracy that came out of mm -hmm. national socialism and this, um, these set of artifacts that that um, are full of gaps, mm -hmm. and in your in your first chapter, you articulate some of the uh, theoretical approaches to the archive, mm -hmm. and I was wondering if you could expand some uh, on what archives have to do with power, mm -hmm. um, both in a broader theoretical sense mm -hmm. and in and in the case studies that you look at. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, that was a really interesting part of the project. Um, and in that first chapter, I'm sort of drawing on different kind of theoretical positions um, in relation to the archive. And what was sort of interesting in that theoretical reading is that, you know, some of these questions of what an archive is, what it does, what it represents, um, are, are very kind of broadly applicable. And so the, the question of the relationship of um, between archive and power is, is you know, something that we can see at work in lots and lots of different contexts, but also to, to see how some of the theoretical writing relating to archives, I think, is much more focused on 
the idea of a, of a sort of post-traumatic archive and specifically a post-Holocaust archive. Um, but to come to your question about um, archives and power, I, mean, I think there are sort of different different people who are interested in that question. I worked um, quite a bit with um, the writing by Elida Asman. So Elida Asman is a really kind of big figure in memory studies um, and has written a lot about um, German memory culture. Um, she's written a particularly interesting book about what she calls um, the, the new discontent in, in German memory culture. Um, and Elida Asman um, writes about um, the, the sort of the, the way that archives, when they sort of have a kind of political power, um, a, a kind of resources um, for um, different different kinds of, of governance and different kinds of um, authority, but that 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 political power kind of um, wanes over time as a, as a kind of regime comes to an end, and that's where. Um, an archive that might kind of become a sort of historical archive that's that's used by um, uh, by historians. Um, she also writes really interestingly about the difference between archive and canon. And for Asman, um, that that sort of cultural memory is sort of made up of a, of an archive, which is sort of all the the, the potential things that that we keep um, about the past. Um, but the canon is what actually gets circulated. So that's a sort of particular way in which um, the archive has a kind of relationship to power in the context of, of um, cultural memory, because um, there's always a question about what is kept, uh, what is preserved, what is sort of deemed worthy of, of keeping in the archive, but then what what from that archive comes to be used, comes to be put into circulation, whether that's um, in sort of exhibitions, whether that's um, in, in sort of uh, different kinds of, of ritual. Um, but in any case, the, the archive, in this in sort of Asman's description of the relationship between um, canon and archive, um, the archive for um, Asman is sort of a kind of passive resource, and then the canon is this sort of way in which it's um, activated. Um, and also, um, you know, there's, there's kind of uh, more kind of um, established work by Foucault, sort of the idea of the Foucauldian archive, which is very much about the sort of the question of what can be said, what is available to be said, um, and that the archive of Foucault is a kind of um, is, is about kind of the, the the statements that can be made, um, and uh, so in in that sense, um, the archive is a sort of a question of of who gets to say what about whom, um, and. Um, in, in work by, by Foucault, but also um, by um, Alec Farge, um, this question of, of sort of archives of, say, prisoners, um, that, that these are not necessarily kind of um, records of individuals that the individuals would have wanted to have kept themselves, or who keeps this record, who makes this record, what kind of narrative is told about a person, and how much control do they have about the sort of record that's left um, so I think there's the, the, the archive is related to power in all, all kinds of ways in terms of who, who has access to what remains of the past, um, who 
gets to use what remains of the past and to what ends do they use those remains of the past. So it's, it's very much a kind of site of, of power and control. Um, and in work by Jack Derrida, um, whose famous book Archive Fever was like a really important um, point of reference for the project, um, Arc- and Derrida emphasises how etymologically um, the idea of the archive is, is linked to a sort of um, the link to the sort of the, the house of the ruling magistrates who who kept certain documents but also were that were empowered um with the authority to um to interpret them so yeah i think this this question of of who who determines what remains um and who determines how those remains are used are, are these really kind of key questions about power that relate to the archive and, and on the subject of how archival materials are interpreted and, and utilized, your, your um, second chapter focuses on projects of memorialization. And I thought it would be interesting, perhaps, as one example, to talk about the well-known Stolperstein. I'm sure many people have seen these stumbling stones, these brass-plated cobblestones that are embedded in many European streets uh, in bearing the names of, of deported and, and murdered individuals during the war. And we learned in the book that this project came under quite a bit of of scrutiny along um, with its widespread acceptance and implementation and celebration. And I was wondering if you could expand on this particular example, what some of the problems are raised by this this project. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really really fascinating project and um, as you say, you know, it's 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 known by by lots of people, and um, lots of people have sort of commissioned stones. That over seventy five thousand of these um, memorials have been laid um, by the artist Gunter Demnig. So you know, a really sort of incredible um, undertaking um, that I think has has been very important for for lots of different people, um, and. I think I was was interested, and sort of just very broadly interested in the project and its and its evolution. I think that I think that's a really interesting sort of story, um, in in terms of how Gunter Demnig developed this project um, in the context of a an art exhibition in um, Berlin in in the nineteen nineties that was. Um, initiated really as a response to the ongoing debates about the Holocaust Memorial in, in Berlin. And this was a group of artists who were really sort of um, challenging the very idea that you could make a memorial to the Holocaust, to the sort of engaging with questions of representability, um, the sort of the extent to which there could be a centralised memorial to the victims of the Holocaust and sort of and, and questioning that possibility in sort of aesthetic terms. And so Demnig um, laid, I think it was 51 of these stones in Kreuzberg in, in Berlin. And, uh, and I think if you if you look at the Stolperstein as, as they were um, they they were um, developed in, in that context, it seems that 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 was Demnig saying you you can't you can't make a centralized memorial for the Holocaust, for the victims of the Holocaust, 
it needs to be something decentralized it needs to be something individualized but that premise of of making it a, a, a dedication to to each individual and and making it um something that's enacted for each individual makes it sort of impossible because of the scale of the event that's being commemorated um and so that that to me seems seems really really interesting that that the project was almost a sort of a a reply to that sort of debate around the the very possibility of a holocaust memorial and then Demick takes the project up again a few years later when he's approached by someone who really liked the memorial and that's when it sort of took off in this kind of um in this much more sort of well-known guise um and as I say, I think you know the, the project means an awful lot to an awful lot of different people. Um, it has, however, sort of received some, um, or, or it's been sort of um, criticised by some people in in different ways. It's the notorious ban of the stones in Munich, um, but also some sort of questions about how, because it's precisely a memorial for individuals. Um, sort of how individuals are sort of chosen or, or how it comes to be that certain individuals are memorialized through a stone um, and you know one one sort of criticism of that would be that it's that the memorials are set the stones are set outside the last place of residence of, of individuals and that sort of assumes a kind of um, it, it assumes someone with a residence or a sort of permanent residence, and so the question of, sort of perhaps um, victims with no fixed abode, for example, and there was a sort of um, kind of counter project um, that where stones were set in um, Alexanderplatz in Berlin precisely for victims with no fixed abode. Um, and I think what I'm interested in in the book is the way that the project has a kind of archival logic that. Um, the project requires research for a stone to be um, produced and to be laid for an individual. And it kind of carries the evidence of that research in the form of the, the basic data that are inscribed on the stone. And um, whether that sort of, um, whether that, that sort of format has a kind of, has sort of bureaucratic echoes um, that, that perhaps um, un- undo some of that individualizing work and it's sort of interesting to think about how in the context of the Berlin Holocaust Memorial some of the did some of the proposed designs did um, suggest naming and listing individuals where possible and and that was and, and that gesture was not always seen as as, as something that would be appropriate for that that central memorial so i was just very very interested in in how the sort of the the kind of the archival logic of of the stolperstein project um on the one hand absolutely is part of the way it's become a really sort of community initiative it gets lots of people involved it it encourages lots of people to uncover these historical traces um but that it also um it makes the project sort of reliant on some of the the, the power structures um, implied by the sort of the, the, the archival material available. And so that, that was something that I was interested in, um, in, in in writing about that project. But I think it's a difficult project to write about because it's um, 
it, it's something that, that as I say, it means a lot to a lot of different people and, and to how to, to, um, to, to look critically at the project, but also um, to understand its significance as well. Mm, absolutely. And I was interested then in also hearing a bit more about what some of the um, other projects were in Berlin that you looked at, in particular, some of the memorialization projects of the Bavarian quarter. Right, yeah, yeah. So this is the, I mean, people might also know this because it's it's also a, a, a very famous project now, kind of a bit older um, than the sort of most recent iteration of Stolpersteiner, um, I think it was from 1993, um, Renate Sti and Frieda Schnock's Orted as a Innans. Um, and people might know this because it's, um, it's, it's very much sort of embedded in the kind of urban fabric of that um, particular area in, in Schoenberg in, in Berlin. And um, Sti and Schnock took various um, parts of, of legislation that were sort of anti-Semitic legislation that, that were brought in um, under, under National Socialism and that discriminated against Jewish residents in, in, in various ways. Um, for example, about sort of being able to sit on a park bench and, and or use a public swimming pool. And it on the one side of, so these signs are hung on, on lampposts, um, perhaps in, in the manner of a, a bus stop or something like that. Um, and on one side of the sign is that legislation, including the, the date. Um, and on the other, a, a sort of a, a very kind of bright, simple logo. So if it's about not being able to use a public swimming pool, it'd be a, a pair of swimming trunks. Um, so very kind of contemporary design. And uh, this was a project that um, was, was I think, received a lot of attention, not least because at the time, uh, residents didn't quite understand what was going on. And I think there's a sort of urban myth that, that um, one resident called the police because they thought this, this anti-Semitic legislation was being enacted there and then. Um, but what's really interesting for me about that project is the way that it sort of brings the sort of the, the, the archive into a sort of contemporary context and confronts us with that sort of um, archive of, of anti-Semitic legislation. Um, and Stian Schnock, of course, um, very interesting um, artists who also submitted a, a, a design to, for the competition for the Berlin Holocaust Memorial, where their proposal was to have um, a regular bus service um, departing from Berlin, taking passengers to um, different um, sites of atrocities and so different concentration camps. Um, on this sort of bright red bus with uh, things like Gravensbrück written um, on the on the front. Um, so yeah, very interesting um, uh, artists working um, with these sort of um, memorial questions. Um, and then another project that I looked at, which wasn't in Berlin, um, was uh, work by Horst Hoheisel and Andreas Knitz. Um, and this was called Semal in the Geschichte and um, was um, precisely about, um, it, it sort of worked within the sort of the archi an archival space in, in Weimar and um, 
Horst Hallheiser has sort of um, done lots of kind of what are known as sort of counter memorial projects or, um, or sort of counter monuments where he's sort of working very much against um, sort of the idea of producing something and instead commemorating destruction by sort of quite iconoclastic acts of destruction. So his design, notoriously for the Berlin um, Holocaust Memorial, was to blow up the Brandenburg Gate and to lay the... um, the demolished remains um, in front of the Brandenburg Gate. So not not a project that was ever going to be realised, but was <laughs> absolutely about um, kind of challenging the sort of the idea that sort of challenging sort of conventional modes of of remembering and commemorating um, and the sort of structures involved in that. And in your discussions of these different memorial projects, it's it's also very evident that there's an element of community input that there's a even if it's a a single artist or a group of artists working on the memorial project itself there is inevitably the the input the the collaboration of the community surrounding it and i was wondering if you could talk a bit more about that about the collective features of dealing with the past, ultimately what your book is talking about is the broader project of Vergangenheitsbewältigung, mm-hmm. the German process of dealing with with the national socialist past. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think this is, this is a really sort of important question, especially in thinking about how, um, how, how a culture of memory might continue in the post-witness era in in within a generation that has an increasingly sort of distant connection to the history at stake and um and in a kind of multimedia age so i think this um and and so you know elida asman when she's writing about what she calls the the discontent of of contemporary memory culture um for her there's sort of the the important thing is kind of keeping keeping discussions going, keeping um, memory culture evolving. Um, and, and key to that would be sort of getting people involved, right? That it's not just a sort of a closed operation. It's it's something um, that, that needs to involve um, different people. Um, and I think that, that connects to this sort of the role of the archive because... Um, you know, that's that's sort of one of the kind of theoretical premises that's sort of talked about by people like Derrida is that the archive is a is about the past, but actually it's about the future, right? The archive is only meaningful if it's going to be used in the future. And that of course asks the question of who is going to use it in the future. And um if any kind of German memory culture that sort of remains committed to remembering the Holocaust is is going to um is, is going to develop and evolve, then then the archive um, plays a, a key role in that. But 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 the archive, as used by different constituents, as as used sort of um, broadly by by different generations, I think is is really important. <clears throat> and that um, that's something in the context of memorials that's been talked about by Bill Niven. Bill Niven sort of proposes that. Um, 
he sort of describes a kind of development of, of memorial culture in Germany, so from the counter memorials and counter monuments of the 1980s and the 1990s as a reaction against sort of the, the very idea of, of a monument or memorial in the context of, of the Second World War and the Holocaust through to what he calls now combi memorials. And the combi memorial is um, precisely a memorial project that gets different people involved, that's, um, that, that um, is sort of combines elements of exhibitions and museums and um, that is where, where an artist might be involved, but it's an artist working with the public, um, getting, getting um, a community involved in that work. Um, so I think that's that that question of community involvement is 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 really important, um, and I think it's also, but it's but I think it's also been a kind of tension within German memory culture, which um, I think there's there's often a kind of tension between the private and the public, between sort of collective memory and and sort of particularly family memory, um, and that's something that kind of comes up particularly in the chapter on um, documentary films. We'll talk about two films, one called Zweider Drei Dinge, die von ihm weiß, two or three things I know about him, by Marta Ludin, and then Winterkinder, Winter Children by Jens Schanzer. And these are <clears throat> uh, sort of, in a way, quite kind of typical um stories um, connected with Germany's Nazi past, connected with German memory culture, where you have, um, in the case of Ludin, a son, in the case of Schanzer, a grandson, trying to understand their male relatives' involvement in National Socialism. <clears throat> and I look at those films because they these directors approach this, this family question, this personal question through the archive. Um, and the archive sort of, I think, firstly, that they approach official sources, so it kind of forces them to break the sort of the, 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 the domestic um, boundaries of these kind of family stories um, and move into a sort of more kind of public realm. Um, but it also, I think, by making these films, by by making documentary films that then are sort of shown um, in cinemas across Germany, there's sort of there's a sense in which these personal histories are somehow um, finding resonance with with much sort of bigger communities, um, in, particularly in generational terms. So yeah, I think this is this is a it's not it's not something I sort of talk about um, explicitly in the book, but I think it's a really a really sort of um, important kind of um, important question that sort of underlies a lot of a lot of the sort of um, discourse around memory culture in, in Germany. Mm -hmm. And and you transition beautifully into talking about the both the private and public aspects of these sort of these processes of family discovery with these documentaries you, you cover. And, and you also conclude that they also act as sites, not just of illuminating information, but also of illuminating the lack of information or of repressed information of silencing, you say. And this is something that you also talk about in particular in the fourth chapter on, on literary works. 
of prose with Katya Petrovskaya's book, where she also, you call it, it encounters the specter of what does not remain, of what is lost or what is missing. So I was wondering if you could tell us more about how these troves of information or sometimes gaps in information also succeed in obscuring or altering the past. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I, think, I think that's right. But, but what I think is um, perhaps a, a feature of some of the works I look at is, is that I think the works are, or the, 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 the makers of these works are very sensitive to that potential for um, archives to both reveal but also obscure. Um, and I think that's that's perhaps sort of part of this archival turn that I'm that I'm interested in. Um, so you know the archival turn. This is about the fact that that um, that, that in a contemporary context we we have to use the archive because after the witnesses, this is this is what remains to us. Um, but I think. Um, it, it, the archival turn also heightens our awareness of what the archive is, what it isn't, what it could be, and and that's I think what I what I'm what I find with with these um, the works that I look at and the, and the makers of these works is that I think they're they're extremely attentive to precisely the sort of the fallibility of the archive, if you like, um, and the particular fallibility of, of the archive in, in this post-Holocaust context. Um, so Katya Petrovskaya, um, it's a really fantastic book, um, Philaite Esther. Um, it, it's a, an autobiographical narrator who is, is so acutely aware that her you know, she's she's it's in again a sort of almost kind of quite conventional history in the sense of narrative, in the sense of trying to find out about her family's past, and she's she's aware herself of this conventionality that that um, that she sort of says, I didn't really want to write this story. She wanted to write a family history that was much older, but she kept kind of stumbling over um, the the twentieth century. This was a sort of a stumbling block for her, and she's acutely aware that she that, that this search for her family history is flawed it's flawed because of what's available to her it's flawed by her own um prejudices and um biases um and it's flawed because the history she's trying to recover is is a is a traumatic history a history of violence that um resists a kind of a, a complete understanding and so these i think the this narrative but also other narratives they're they're writing not just about how they turn to the archive to try and understand something but that in doing so they're confronted with with the um with with the, the flawed nature of of this resource which is ordinarily pitted against something unreliable like memory right you know that the archive the archive is fact memory is unreliable right that sort of um a, a kind of cliched kind of opposition um so i think that's that's really the the thing that i find sort of distinctive about um the the works that i'm looking at is is there sort of a you know it, it's not just that they use the archive and then 
this sort of supplements their kind of limited knowledge that's limited through generational distance say but it's a sort of an awareness of um of of what it means to to use to have to use these resources and to, to have to be confronted with their um with their limitations and petroskaya is so wonderful because she um she she has a really wonderful bit where she's using or she's trying to find the, the name of her relatives within I think it's a, a telephone book so there's a list of names that also sound very similar and she says she's aware that in this search she wants a particular thing and in wanting a particular thing she doesn't want all the other things and this sort of gets her thinking about how in sort of undertaking this personal research there's a sort of um, an appropriation if you like of of certain kind of archival resources um, in this in this case of names but these names sort of signify individuals and she starts to feel very bad about the other names that she's sort of abandoning when she takes what she wants and then says well I don't need you I don't need these other names they're not my names and so she's um, Petroskaya's sort of answer to this is is a sort of she talks about adoption that 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 actually the generation of this post-witness era, this generation that, that has to turn to the archive, is under a certain obligation to not simply take what it wants in, in sort of constructing very personal narratives or very sort of partial narratives. It's under an obligation to take some kind of, I guess, historical responsibility for for different actors in, in the past. And that, I think, is, again, a really sort of um, distinctive aspect of, of what some of these authors and directors are doing is um, it's sort of grappling with um, what their sort of responsibility, what their sort of archival responsibility is, if you like. Um, and, yeah, that's sort of very, I found that sort of very striking in, in the text I was working with, particularly Petroskaya, who's, who's a fantastic writer. And you, you point out some some important tensions there and in, in sort of how uh, both to deal individually with the archive and with with evidence of the past and also collective responsibility and, and dealing with the past. You also talk about the tension between in national socialism, the project of, of elimination, mm-hmm. but also the constant documentation. Mm-hmm. And, and one final tension that you point out in the conclusion that struck me was this um, need for memory to be both available for completion, you say, mm-hmm. and available for infinite performance mm-hmm. in a response for to what the contemporary nation is. So I was wondering if in, in closing and talking about the mm-hmm. book, you could elaborate on this a bit more. Yeah, yeah. So I think this was... Um... I think the what what you've just picked up on was sort of more a kind of problematic really of of you know again to to go back to Asman's idea of sort of the, this kind of unease or discontent in memory culture sort of you know wh- where do we go from here right is Germany does Germany have to is it does it necessarily have to keep performing this 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 work of memory in order to show its commitment but then does it become a sort of empty ritual um, or and this is the sort of the the kind of inbuilt, if you like, into the language of Vergangenheitsbewältigung. Is it a project that that sort of 
is ultimately aiming for some kind of completion, right? And if if and I'm sort of in the book, I I talk, I use that sort of vocabulary of of work, right? Memory work, morning work, but also archive work. And if you sort of drawing on that that vocabulary of work, it sort of it, it questions this idea of the task being being performed, right? Is it is it a task to be completed? But then what would that mean, you know, and that's been a big sort of debate in, in sort of um, post-war Germany, right, this sort of whole question of, of can the past ever, should you ever want to draw a line under the past, right, obviously lots of people have, have got into all kinds of trouble for, for suggesting it could be, but then realistically what does it mean to keep um, enacting this work sort of indefinitely, um, and that was sort of um, the sort of the, the kind of um in in the sort of introduction I sort of suggest that archive work is is the kind of unfinished business of of German memory culture that that archive work um is sort of found at the at the at the sort of beginnings of, of memory work and morning work particularly um thinking about um the the sort of documentation produced um during something like the Frankfurt Auschwitz trials, which is this sort of um, is seen as this kind of watershed moment in Germany's kind of reckoning with its national socialist past, um, and then but but that sort of um, documentary foundation sort of returns again in this kind of late phase of, of German memory culture as, as what I'm calling unfinished business. So yeah, that's a kind of provocation really, a sort of you know if if archive work is the sort of task that faces um a, a kind of contemporary generation um it, that that is 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 now part of this this po- it lives in this post witness era where a turn to the archive is necessary is the archive um a part of a sort of infinite perpetuation of memory work um or does it you know because there's a sort of finite uh, resource there, does it suggest there's some kind of um, task to be completed? So that was really one of the sort of bigger questions of the book was, was what role does the archive as a kind of trope of memory have for the future of memory work um, in Germany? And, and as I say, I think the, the kind of case studies that I look at, I think these are artists and authors who are very aware of precisely the the difficulty of providing any kind of answer to that question um and and in 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 highlighting how the archive is is um is anything but a resource that provides definitive answers it's sort of keeping that question open i think in probably quite important ways um I think, also, yeah. yeah, sorry, sorry. No, go ahead. No, I, I'm just, um, in the conclusion, I sort of um, talk a little bit about, um, so the, the transcripts from the Frankfurt-Auschwitz trials um, are now um, part of a sort of UNESCO, um, have sort of UNESCO status, and that they're sort of, they're there, they will now be kind of preserved, Um and this, I think, is really important because it sort of 
again, it sort of shows that that sort of archive work is this kind of unfinished business because um, preserving the the records of those trials is 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 really important. But it asks questions about what will happen with that with the archive, who will use it, um, perhaps questions about digitization, right? That that um, as this material becomes um, available digitally, that makes it almost part of a kind of it makes it sort of much more available, sort of maybe available transnationally. Um, so, so there's sort of the, the, there's technological um, questions about a sort of archive in, in a sort of digital mode, but also questions about a kind of global archive in its sort of transnational reach. So, I think those are sort of the, the big kind of next questions in terms of this sort of particular post-Holocaust archive. It's sort of questions about mediality um but um but really i think that the book is is what the book is trying to show is that there has been there is an archival turn there is a turn towards the archive and acknowledgement that this this is this is that memory has to be archival in the post-witness era but an awareness of, of the of the difficulties that presents um, in sort of using this post very particular archive, namely the post-Holocaust archive, mindfully. So I don't think I have. So I don't think the book is sort of trying to answer a question in, in that sense. I think it's trying to show the sort of um, it's it's trying to actually ask some of the questions of of what that archival turn means. And I think. Um, those are similarly some of the questions posed by these um, directors and artists and and um, authors. And it sounds like some of these initiatives, like with UNESCO and the new opportunities presented by technology, mm-hmm. might then be opening up even further into the next era of memory culture. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I think now I'd be interested in hearing how perhaps your last research project, this one informs what you're working on next. I'd be curious to hear um, what's what's uh, next for you, what you're working on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think I'm so perhaps thinking about those questions of digitization, questions of memory. Um, I'm interested in, in some of this, um, the kind of discourse and theory around post-humanism and sort of... Um, de-anthropocentric discourse where the question of memory seems to be such a human one um, in some ways, right? I think especially in the context of Holocaust memory that there's a real question about sort of um, humanity caught up up there. Um, Sort of, you know, the the necessity of of humans remembering something extremely dehumanizing. Um, And so, yeah, I'm kind of, I think, the, the sort of the next things I'm I'm interested in are sort of how um, yeah how how memory um, is how how memory is perhaps sort of um, or the question of memory is perhaps reorientated in a sort of in in kind of um, in a sort of post-humanist era um, where the sort of the the figure of the human is is decentered somewhat um, and I think what's interesting about um, a lot of the discussions happening in the humanities around post-humanism, um, anthropocentrism, 
um, and the Anthropocene are um, interesting questions for area studies or sort of or, or um, disciplines that can sometimes be seen as area studies. So German studies, for instance, you know, and, and how um, how you can ask these sort of um, much more kind of global questions in in the context of your particular language area. And I do think those questions are relevant in a particular um, language and cultural and, and national context um, where national is always sort of reaching out to the kind of transnational. Um, but I think it, it does kind of challenge challenge sort of German studies, for instance, or, or, or other kinds of, of language disciplines. Um, but it's it's something that I'm, I'm very interested in. Um, I've been doing some work recently on um, Kurt Beckermann's film, Heinz Weitzer, um, and I'm very interested in, in how she um, remembers um, the uh, Waldheim affair in the 1980s um, in a way that's, I think, trying to challenge the sort of the, the the kind of authority of, of a figure like Waldheim, which is very much a kind of an authority based on a sort of white European male kind of exclusivity. Um, so um, I've yeah I've been doing some some work on that, particularly thinking about Waldheimer's um, former UN Secretary General um, and his record the recording of his voice on the um, on the Voyager Golden Record, um, which is something that Zebart notes an irony that Zebart notes um, in the Rings of Saturn that this man um, who was known to have been um, at least present where um, war crimes were committed um, should be the voice that speaks on on um, behalf of humanity um, on this this golden record. So um, and that's something that Beckerman picks up wonderfully in her in her film um, Heinz Weitzer. So that's something that I've been looking at. Well, I'm really looking forward to reading that, and it's always great to hear about how working in a particular area or language can also have of course, global implications and be in conversation mm -hmm. with other fields. Well, thank you so, so much for joining me this morning, your afternoon. Um, and I hope to talk to you again. And I'm looking forward to reading more of your work. Thank you. Thanks, Leah. Thanks very much.